Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Rosebuzz podcast. Um, today, we are joined by yet another pair of phenomenal house fellows, uh, specifically Todd Bittner, who is the director of natural areas for Cornell Botanic Gardens, and also Andrew, who I believe goes by Andy um, Zepp, who is the executive director of the Finger Lakes Land Trust. Thank you both for being here. Um, and to start this session off, Annalie and I thought it would be nice um, to just give you both a couple of minutes to introduce yourselves and share a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, I uh, will start by uh, talking about my connection to this place, being Ithaca and Cornell, where I uh, was an undergraduate many years ago in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations, where I was headed toward the Foreign Service and Johns Hopkins till I visited Johns Hopkins and I didn't kind of bond with it. And I came up to Cornell on this glorious sunny weekend and uh, you know, liked the place and grew some roots here. And after getting that degree, came back later for a master's of professional studies in natural resources and fell into a field that was pretty new then. It was um, uh, the private nonprofit world of land conservation. Basically it didn't exist say 50 years ago or almost didn't exist. But I uh, have worked for nonprofits, including the Nature Conservancy, a large international group. I worked in Washington, D.C. for an association of land conservation groups called the Land Trust Alliance. But I came back to Ithaca about 17 years ago to run the Finger Lakes Land Trust, which is a uh, conservation group that works with landowners and local communities to conserve those lands that are valued by the community, whether that's the last undeveloped shoreline on our lakes, whether it's uh, rugged gorges, recreational resources like the Finger Lakes Trail, our best farmland and so on. And we do that by acquiring land and managing it for the public good and also using legal agreements that limit development while allowing it to remain in private hands. And then we work with partners like the Botanic Gardens or New York State or the US Forest Service or local towns to use all of these tools to essentially protect the lands and waters of the, the 12 counties, the Finger Lakes region, which is an area about the size of Vermont. So that's a little bit about what I do and how I ended up back in Ithaca. So as Farah mentioned, I'm the Natural Areas Director for Cornell Botanic Gardens. The, the gardens are the Arboretum Botanic Gardens and Natural Areas of Cornell University. I like to think of them as the outdoor classrooms for the university. We manage 3,600 acres of high quality natural areas uh, including a third of campus. So folks are familiar with Fall Creek Gorge, Cascadilla Gorge, BB Lake, and the Wildflower Garden uh, are among those. But we also have 24 off-campus natural areas that serve as these uh, outdoor classrooms as well. So my journey began in Illinois, uh, growing up on a farm and, and uh, going to school there and getting very interested in uh, natural areas and, and restoration. In particular, Illinois used to be the, well, is the prairie state. It was 60% covered in prairie and it had 0.007% of its prairie left in the late uh, 1900s. And so restoration uh, of those really critical habitats was essential if you're gonna conserve those, those resources. And it became one of the areas where ecological restoration really uh, began. So I was involved with that. I uh, was at the uh, Morton Arboretum for a while. I worked with the Nature Conservancy and then I spent 15 years 
with the Illinois Department of Natural Resources as a natural heritage biologist in North Central Illinois, doing um, conservation of some of the rarest um, state properties, endangered species that are present, which was a really fantastic job. <clears throat> and um, Cornell lured me away from that, uh, in part because I really valued the mentorship that I had uh, while I was developing my career, uh, uh, both uh, academically and in, in different positions that I've been involved with. And coming to the Botanic Gardens allowed me to kind of have that opportunity to pay that forward with students here and be engaged with the education uh, side uh, as well as the conservation side. So I have a really great balance in uh, how I am involved with the academic uh, elements of the university while still getting to care for some really, really special places. And in doing that, I teach uh, restoration ecology, I guess lecture in various um, classes. I uh, support uh, at any given time, our natural areas support about three dozen uh, research projects, some of which we collaborate on directly as well. So I really uh, get to wear a lot of hats in uh, the Botanic Gardens and my role here, which is uh, really rewarding. And I've been here now for 13 years and a, and a house fellow, I, I, I lost track. I think this is year seven or eight. Okay, so our first question um, is, what has been the most rewarding part or moment of your professional career? And this can relate to your experiences outside of Cornell or your time at Cornell as well. Um, well, for me, they're kind of combined and they happen, you know, it's kind of ongoing because what I didn't mention is, the, the land trust was my master's project. So I created it 31 years ago and uh, we've protected 25,000 acres. And a lot of this is you can go visit. So for me to, what I like to do in my spare time is do all kinds of outdoor stuff. So to be able to walk around in these areas that we thought about conserving uh, 31 years ago and, and being able to enjoy them is you know, really rewarding. And while I, I enjoyed working nationally and internationally, it, uh, at some point, if you, you're constantly getting on planes and helping the people who help the people who help the people who do what got you into this, you can kind of only do that for so long, or I could. And it's nice to have kind of the tangible uh, parts of my work now that I do miss, you know, the people that I used to work with all over, you know, um, the country and other parts of the world, but but I do find that the most rewarding to be able to connect back to what got me into this field in the first place. So I, I would say um, it's hard to put uh, it into one you know particular thing, but in doing conservation work, a lot of it is you're in it for the long haul, and there you know it, you keep doing the same thing year over year, and there aren't a lot of milestones of of uh, completion, but there have been a few that I can point to. Um, one of them was uh, while I was back in Illinois working uh, with folks at Nechusa Grasslands, which is a, uh, a preserve in North Central Illinois as part of the, uh, uh, managed by the Nature Conservancy. And I wrote a bison reintroduction plan in the mid 1990s. And six years ago, they brought 70 bison from South Dakota to the preserve. Uh, and it was the first, um, time that there was a, a large scale bison reintroduction uh, effort in Illinois. So it was really kind of rewarding to have been involved with that very early on. 
and to see it come to fruition. Uh, obviously, a lot of people were involved to make that happen, not just me, but um, so uh, a, a similar project that was uh, really uh, years in the making was rebuilding the Cascadilla Gorge Trail. So I got here in 2008 and it's this really beloved uh, iconic part of, of Ithaca and Cornell and Andy lives right by it. So he twisted my arm to make sure that we fixed it as well. So, um, but it was in really, really poor condition. And um, we ended up uh, going to the university and saying, you know, we either need to pay to have this be repaired or pay to have it be closed. And this was in the middle of the Great Recession. So getting any funds from the university was pretty remarkable. Uh, at the end of the day, it took seven years for us and $2.8 million to rebuild the, the trail. And uh, we had as kind of a unwritten goal that if people went out there and looked at it and they thought that it looked like it always had uh, in terms of its uh, historic integrity, uh, then we'll know that we met our goal. So that was uh, a real labor of love to get the, uh, the Gorge Trail um, reopened and, and look similar to when it was uh, first constructed in the early 1930s. So just a couple examples of some pretty rewarding projects that I've been involved with. We're curious to know, um, and both of you have kind of touched on this um, in your responses thus far, um, but what is it exactly that motivates both of you to do the work that you do? I guess for me, it's the combination of the land itself and uh, people and, and trying to build consensus. Because I, again, I started out in industrial labor relations. So I did not have this upbringing. I grew up in a, a, a classic railroad suburb of New York, just outside the Bronx in lower Westchester County. So on one hand, it was uh, always kind of gravitating towards kind of just working with people. And I had worked I, in high school. I started out, I wanted a car. So I worked in a warehouse and I've had all these different kinds of work in my life. But then the land was significant because it, it was a kind of an affluent little suburb, but there really was no unavailable land. And I, vi I vividly remember, you know, as a kid hanging out on this scrap of rocky land near the railroad that was just too rugged to build on. And that was it. That was the, the natural world for me. And then to come up here and see what existed and that it wasn't an either or that we could accommodate development and use these resources if we did it smart and also conserve these lands, but it was this personal aspect. There are lots of reasons to conserve land, but I enjoy you know, using these places. So I think since an early age, that, that's kind of my motivator is seeing people agree that didn't think they could, and then having this, this tangible land for all these different you know, ways we can enjoy it. I've always been in awe of nature and how much there is to learn about it. We are really only scratching the surface in terms of understanding the interconnectedness of all these different species. And I, I'm an ecologist by training. And so, you know, part of that is trying to understand the systems and how things work together. But the amount of, of uh, information that is yet to be learned about nature is, uh, is something that's really exciting to me because you're constantly getting to learn more about it and then you apply it into the work that you do to try to keep and protect 
and conserve these, you know, amazing resources that yet require more to be known about in order to, to be able to do that. So it's an unending amount of uh, phenomenal things that you can learn about the natural world that really inspires me. And then I also have a passion for getting people out in nature, uh, both for the physical uh, well-being that it provides, the mental well-being. So we do do a lot of, of work to you know, try to get more people out into the woods, which then is really rewarding for, for us to uh, see how um, others are enjoying and appreciating these uh, areas as well. Um, my next question um, is very pertinent just to our times and everything that's been going on in the last um, about a year. Um, so how has the pandemic impacted the, your work at Cornell? Um, have there been any changes to your approaches um, in all the work that you do as well? Um, well, on, for the Land Trust, which is a, a nonprofit with 15 staff, kind of like any other small business, we've had to uh, you know, change the way we work in terms of ensuring safe offices and cleaning protocols. And so there's been a lot of changes just in the, the work environment. And the other changes are that on one hand, we do, we do a lot of real estate work and the legal system is slowed way down. So everything's slower. Uh, you know, the courts are slower. Uh, you know, the, the law firms are operating more slowly. And then the flip side of that, though, which is in a way a big positive, is use of our preserves. And I'm sure this is true for the botanic gardens, too, is way up. And in fact, I just heard that the local state parks uh, attendance was up 30%, which is a huge single year increase. So, and that's been a, it creates a little more work for us on one hand, because with use also comes some level of abuse, but in general, it's, it's also uh, given us a lot more support. So I think we're in better financial shape as a nonprofit than some of the theater or arts group that after six months into the pandemic, it's a little bit out of sight, out of mind. Well, we've had people make contributions and say, you know, I always knew these places are out there, but I never actually visited them till the pandemic. Yeah, we've seen a record increase in visitation, not just on in our natural areas, but the Arboretum and the Botanic Gardens as well. Um, early on, we were one of the few places that was open around um, Cornell's campus. While, um, uh, and so folks were really utilizing us. We wanted to actually document it so we put trail counters out and, and actually we're uh, seeing year over year increases. As Andy was saying, some of our areas, we had double uh, the number of uh, people, but we also struggled in a lot of ways. Um, construction slowed way down early on in the pandemic and we had areas in Cascadilla Gorge that needed to be repaired. And so the trail was closed for most of the uh, spring and summer. Uh, until that work was able to, to, to begin uh, again and we could get the Gorge Trail open. Um, uh, you know, our work really, uh, we have uh, 45 staff at the Botanic Garden, so fairly large operation. And it took us quite a while to adjust to doing that work. Our staff were identified as essential all along. So we were on campus and we really quickly had to come up with protocols to keep everybody safe while we were still learning about, uh, about COVID. And um, that really took a lot of, of effort on our part because we do a lot of work uh, with teams. And we ended up having to really reinvent how we did work 
uh, so that people could operate individually. And for the type of uh, work that we do, construction, horticulture, natural areas conservation, and even our education programs, uh, it really changed us nearly 100% and almost across the board and all the work that we're doing. And in some ways, in a positive way, we, um, a lot of our education programs have now gone online like this is, and we're reaching audiences that we hadn't before and being able to track them. We um, recently had a, uh, a lecture, Carolyn Finney, um, well-known author, and we had folks from uh, 12 different countries tune into our uh, lecture series, which in the past would have been at the Statler and folks would have only been able to attend if they were here on campus and in person. So um, it's been mixed in terms of uh, a lot of the, the outcomes. I'm curious if um, to know how the pandemic, um, in addition to these challenges in the workplace, how it's impacted your personal lives. Well, probably like many people on this call, I miss travel. I miss travel for work, travel for leisure, and um, we're in one year and boy, I can't wait to travel. Uh, fortunately, everyone in my family has been well and healthy, so we haven't been uh, you know, stricken by it, but, uh, um, and we've actually come through pretty well, but at this point, I would say for me, I'm just dying to get back to going places. Yeah, I can, I can echo that. Um, the, um, in, in, in some ways though, it has afforded uh, opportunities to have additional uh, freedom uh, in terms of your, your day-to-day -day work. So uh, I, I do have a lot of uh, uh, latitude in terms of uh, my work schedule and things like that, but now working at home, uh, you know, if I wanna be able to, to go for a bike ride or something in the middle of the day would not have been the kind of thing that I would have done um, previously. Of course, I'm not doing that in the winter, but I did get to go out and do, do a little bit of skiing like Andy did as, uh, as well. So. Uh, there have been some positives in uh, how it's affected us personally. Fortunately, my family has been well, and so I uh, haven't been struck by tragedy like some have, but, you know, you, uh, almost everybody knows uh, somebody uh, very close to them that they've lost by this, and so it has uh, touched a lot of us um, in that way as well. Um, but uh, I have to say it's had a larger effect on my children uh, in terms of their uh, um, learning through Zoom, uh, you know, remotely, uh, I think that probably is at the top of the list in terms of, of impacts. And I experienced that somewhat myself because I taught restoration ecology this past uh, semester and it was an in-person class, but we had to uh, afford uh, students that might not be able to make it, they might be in quarantine or whatever to be able to join remotely. And so to reinvent a class that you had to be able to present to people in person as well as remote, both in the classroom and in the field, because uh, it was a field-based class really was uh, uh, quite a challenge, but I was, um, we had a great group of students and, and managed to do that through the year. So um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of reinvention over this past year and how things get done. We talked about the increased usage of all these parks and natural areas and don't expect that to stay because people will go back to other things. But what do people predict is gonna be the net at the end of it all? Will it be about the same? Will people some percentage discover it? So if we're up 30, 
Will it end up being up five, up 20, up 30, flat? I'm just curious what people think. That's what we wonder a lot about. If, uh, when it's all said and done, what are the usage levels for this kind of outdoor recreation? Uh, Sophia said that uh, people will realize they enjoyed it so much that they'll, usage will increase. And that's, that's kind of think our, our, in our office anyway, that's the collective kind of our, our, our sense. And it just mattered how much. I feel like I agree um, 100%. I, this is the most outdoorsy I think I've ever been in my three years at Cornell, just because I feel like that's been like the safest way to spend time with my friends and stuff along those lines. And I feel like I discovered like hikes and trails that I had never been on. And I don't think people are going to stop post-pandemic. Well, speaking of that, I'll put in a plug for IthacaTrails.org. Um, obviously Andy has the Finger Lakes, uh, website and, and go Finger Lakes and, and we have the Botanic Gardens as well, but IthacaTrails.org has all 240 miles of hiking trails, uh, in Tompkins County in one spot. So you can, um, find what's near you or, or search for something that you're interested in, um, make a bucket list out of all the gorge, uh, hikes that you could go visit and, uh, um, I know uh, Andy was involved with uh, helping make that website and I was as well. And one of the main reasons was because we, at any given time, 25% of the students at Cornell are new and they don't know what a great resource is right out their back door. So we wanted to be able to afford that by uh, making a really easy way for folks to orient and find great places to go hiking. I'm curious. Um... For students who are interested, especially given that more and more of us are discovering these uh, spaces, these outdoor spaces for the first time, and in theory, you know, rediscovering our appreciation for these spaces, um, how can people get involved um, in supporting the work that you both are doing? Um, and I know, Todd, you kind of mentioned a couple of the different programs that um you help oversee and have started to get more people in outdoor spaces. But um, I guess I'm curious to know what kind of volunteer opportunities there are. And for people who are intellectually curious about these um, topics, like what are good ways to, um, to start digging? Cued me up perfectly, Farah. <laughs> I wanted to talk about our internship program. Uh, so the, uh, we actually are, are launching um, a changed internship program than what we've had in the past called Learning by Leading. If you go to the Cornell Botanic Gardens.org uh, website, uh, we're going to be posting job announcements for uh, two, uh, well, actually four positions uh, starting in about a week. And they're not up there yet, um, but we're going to be launching two teams uh, under this uh, Learning by Leading model. Uh, one of them is going to be focusing on sustainable landscapes. And so there'll be two student positions that um, work in the spring semester and then full-time in, the in the summer. And then again, part-time in the fall semester. Build a team with student volunteers working with mentors at the Botanic Gardens to uh, learn about uh, sustainable landscape maintenance and actually do on the ground projects. So that's uh, a great opportunity to be involved either at an entry level volunteer position or as a paid position. And then uh, at the same time, we're launching another team called the Horticultural Enterprises. 
And they're going to be working out of our plant pr production facility, both in terms of propagating material to go in the gardens, but also into some of our natural area restorations, as well as um, uh, plant sales to generate uh, income to keep the program going. And uh, so if you have a green thumb, those are uh, uh, great opportunities and those are all paid. We do also have uh, other volunteer opportunities outside of those programs. So uh, that information, you can go to the cornellbotanicgardens.org website and, and learn all about it. Yeah, and we too, uh, we had to scale back for COVID, but this spring we'll be relaunching our volunteer programs, which uh, people can really volunteer to the extent they want. So we have a, a, a lot of events is a couple hours that people can come out for, or we have volunteers that are really autonomous and play a major role over the course of a year and helping us care for all this land we own. Uh, also opportunities for photography and a whole bunch of things. And uh, there's opportunity to sign up on our website, which is flt.org. The only limitation is if you look at the spring is typically, in the, you know, without the pandemic, we wouldn't cap numbers for a lot of this and worry about that. So now it'll probably be a little more, you know, have registration and, and cap numbers, but we are going to be kind of relaunching that this spring. The other thing I should mention, not just us, but Botanic Gardens for learning about this stuff. The one, as Todd mentioned, the silver lining of Zoom is that you can get access to a lot of programming pretty easily. So for example, we had a Zoom program. We uh, supported the recent uh, Botanic Gardens program, but on our own, we had a staff person who's knowledgeable about edible plants. And uh, we have one coming up on uh, water quality issues. So these are all free and it's not just us. There, there's a lot of available programming. You can kind of just check out and see what interests you, um, you know, through Zoom. I have a question, um, which is kind of a follow-up from what Farah just asked. Um, I know, um, Andrew Zepp, you mentioned that the land trust was part of your, um, part of your like extracurricular and your work that you did while you were a Cornell student. So I was kind of curious how that project came about um, on your end um, and how you ended up just continuing that? Um, well, it was timing because these, this, this organization called a land trust of which there are about 1700 of them now across the US. Some are quite old. The oldest land trust over hundred years old. It's in Massachusetts called the Trustees of Reservation. But most of them, they, they, they really boomed in the late 1980s. So that in many parts of the country, like upstate New York, there were none. So at the time, and I had worked for the Nature Conservancy and developed some skills and expertise. And at the time I came back for a master's, I knew that clearly this was an area where there'd be community support for it. And I had moved here from New England and had experience in it. So uh, it was a matter of being kind of in the right place at the right time. So the real key to my project was simply recruiting an effective founding board of directors. So essentially, all that I did was really kind of try to be a facilitator for this, this uh, members of the community who came together, raised a little money, got a lawyer incorporated and on all that. So it was really timing more than anything else because uh, you know, if it had been years earlier, it might not have been the right moment to succeed. And years later, once the organization exists, 
there's a need for other organizations, but it, it was the right moment in time for that one. I, I guess one thing that um, comes to mind for me is um, there, especially with um, the recent um, natural, I don't know if we would call them natural, well, yeah, natural disasters that have been happening um, and highlighting where we are as a global community with climate change. I don't know if either of you um, could share your thoughts and maybe some of the work you might be doing um, related to um, environmental justice in the Ithaca community or um, things you would like to see or being discussed more within our own community. Well, I'll I'll start. Um, We have been very involved with the Greater Ithaca uh, Activities Center for a very long time. And, you know, there's a a need to get uh, youth out into nature um, to kind of have that experience. And, and some uh, uh, youth are very unfamiliar with it. And, you know, how do you have that first foray out into, uh, into the natural world and feel comfortable with it? And so we partnered with, the, uh, with GIAC for a number of years to try to facilitate that, um, you know, being able to um, uh, you know, provide uh, s- safety, but also interpretation. Um, what, uh, you know, entry level knowledge you need to go out and uh, experience the natural world. It was unfortunate that GIAC was one of the uh, significant casualties of COVID. When uh, a lot of things started to shut down, they had uh, layoffs and, and uh, uh, had to reduce a lot of their programming and it was unfortunate because that's exactly the kinds of organizations that needed to be propped up to, to provide the social support services for um, you know, disadvantaged, economically challenged uh, youth. So um, we're hoping that um, as things uh, uh, reopen, we can um, renew that partnership with GIAC, um, getting um, you know, the kids when they're young out into the natural world is, uh, is really, uh, I think, foundational in uh, um, trying to support social justice, so- social environmental justice. Yeah, we're, we're um, kind of in the midst of really a, a scoping process because we've, we've done uh, some work with some inner city communities, particularly in Rochester, where we've made some grants uh, to connect kids with the outdoors, but really beyond that, basically to characterize us we're primarily, you know, white group working in rural countryside that does things like like provide clean water and things like that that benefit everyone. But it really did make us think, well, what does it mean to serve community in an area the size of a small state? And what we're, we're really looking at, and because Ithaca has so many partners like Cornell Botanic Gardens, and, and we've worked with GIAC too, but we thought, you know, in our region, there are three small cities that are really challenged and have a lot more distress than Ithaca. And that's Elmira, Auburn, and parts of Geneva. And Elmira and Auburn in particular, they're former manufacturing towns where the manufacturing left, and they have uh, uh, maximum security prisons in the center of them. They really have some just some really tough issues like uh, many other communities. So what we're trying to do that is, is you know very complicated, it's very, how do we translate our skill set and the work that we do out in the countryside to the city of Elmira, the city of Auburn, 
And I can't tell you how it's going to end up because we're in the process of that. And this is where, um, you know, the classic good intentions where we came in thinking, well, we know real estate and uh, maybe there, we could um, acquire and assist with community gardens and stuff. Well, of course, you know, we're not the first people to have this bright idea. Sure enough, what do we find that there's ample land, but there's a lack of uh, local interest and leadership capacity. So it's like, huh, well, I guess we're not going to buy a community garden. So we're, we're reaching out to the boys and girls clubs and, and really doing a lot of self-education, but committed to kind of figure out and, and kind of accept that it's not good enough to just say, well, we're providing clean water and the views at the edge of town, but to try to translate what we've been somewhat successful on and then to you know, be relevant to these, uh, you know, these small cities. And, and we don't include Syracuse and Rochester really because our service area just comes up shy and there's some other land trusts that work there. So that's kind of why we singled them out. And not to say we won't do this similar work in Ithaca, but frankly, Ithaca benefits from a lot more institutions like Todd's that simply don't exist in Elmira or Auburn. So we're, we're on a journey. We'll see where, where it leads. I'll, I'll add one more um, component to my answer. Um, since I know a lot of the students here are, uh, are sophomores, they might not have been around to realize that we used to be called Cornell Plantations not that many years ago. And uh, it's, it was an interesting journey for us to uh, go about changing our, our name. And, you know, there was actually several layers to this. Um, the first goes back to um, Dean uh, Bailey, uh, the first Cornell Ca uh, College of Agriculture and Life Sciences Dean. And he had a vision for um, a, an organization that uh, had sustainable landscape, uh, sustainable agriculture, uh, horticulture and natural areas conservation under one umbrella. And there wasn't a term for that kind of an entity. And coming from an abolitionist uh, background himself was interested in changing the meaning of the word plantations from Southern slave, you know, cotton uh, type of plantation to what we were and um, wasn't obviously successful in you know, being able to have the greater public uh, change the meaning of the word, if you will. And you know, here we are in the, the modern time and um, a lot of people, they see plantation, they think of either uh, you know, Southern slavery or row crop uh, you know, agriculture like pine tree plantations or pineapple plantations, um, or, uh, or or something else, but not a botanic garden. And and they're like, what is a plantation? I don't even know. So we we clearly had an identity crisis, and um, uh, began to work in earnest about six years ago to to change our name. It took about two and a half years, uh, a lot of. Uh, of behind the scenes conversations to get people to understand the, um, uh, you know, why we were called what we were and how people perceived it. And uh, we were successful about four, four and a half years ago in changing uh, our name to Cornell Botanic Gardens. So we, 
Uh, others might not see it as a social justice, environmental justice kind of uh, component, but um, we weren't a welcoming place to all communities. And, uh, um, and so we felt that we needed to, to make that change so that we would be. One, one thing I also wanna mention is that uh, as we're doing the work I described, we also operate within the territories of three different uh, Haudenosaunee uh, Iroquois tribes. And that adds this whole other layer because of the three tribes too, the Onondaga, the Cayuga and the Seneca, one of those tribes has an unresolved land claim that basically the history of the Cayuga Nation is that the state of New York did a treaty that it didn't have the legal authority to do. And this was a court case in the late 1900s that the, the U.S. court said, yep, New York, uh, you know, screwed up. And, and then the question is now, what do you do about it? So you have an unresolved land claim just up the lake. And not only that, you have a, a tribe that's fractured. There are two factions that are fighting with each other. So if you think of a small little nonprofit trying to be helpful and engage, it's uh, very challenging to say the least and figure out you know, what, is, uh, you know, what, is, what is appropriate for us to do in, in lots of different ways. And of course, everyone has a different opinion. So that, but that's for anyone who, any organization like mine that's operating in, uh, you know, where, where there's a, a tribal entity, uh, you know, that too is something where, you know, we've, we've always recognized the history and tried to pay, honor that in some way, but, but, you know, really clearly not sufficient. So that's, that's something else that's going on as well. I have a follow-up question to that. So you mentioned just like recognizing indigenous communities, um, but I was wondering, do you ever do um, for both of you, any partnerships with indigenous communities um, in the Ithaca region? Um, we have we have not yet, but that's what I have a meeting actually um, Monday with a representative of the Haudenosaunee Environmental Task Force. So honestly, we're just starting that discussion. And I think it's, um, I, I, you know, again, learning what, and I think, again, the opinions will be all over the map of uh, uh, what people's wants are and what we think we can actually do, but it's that's still all to be determined. Yeah, we, we've actually been engaged um, with folks from the Cuba Nation, and um, uh, one of the uh, folks is a visiting faculty uh, teaching um, a language of uh, the Cuba Nation uh, here at Cornell, and wanted to um, uh, utilize uh, part of our uh, pounder vegetable garden and also part of our uh, Monday wildflower garden to propagate um, uh, corn, bean, squash in, in those different areas as part of tangible um, elements, uh, you know, uh, to help people learn the language um, because the language is so intertwined with the culture that you kind of need the, the physical culture component to come along with um, with it. And so what better way to do that than uh, than out in the in the natural world with with food, which is you know such uh, so important. Um, we also, as a staff, uh, took a field trip to Ganondagan, which if you haven't been up there, uh, is a really fantastic uh, spot. It's a, a state park, but it's run by uh, the Haudenosaunee uh, uh, staff and volunteers there, and we really wanted to learn uh, from them. Uh, about the uh, stewardship of the land and, and their um, culture as much as we could. And, 
and then um, uh, had additional conversations with them. Um, we recognize that Emerald Ash Borer, an invasive uh, forest pest, is uh, here in the region and it's killing uh, ash, including black ash, which is so important for uh, basket weaving and other weaving uh, for the, uh, the Haudenosaunee. And so here's this uh, staple that they're gonna be uh, losing. And they were having some difficulty locally sourcing some uh, black ash. And so we um, had some at one of our preserves and we know that we aren't gonna be able to, to keep all of those trees alive as uh, emerald ash borer comes through. So we worked with them to uh, take some, uh, I think maybe two dozen uh, ash logs out of one of our natural areas that then we donated to uh, Ganondagon for them to use for uh, classes in uh, teaching basket weaving and, and other things. And, and we've had other displays at our uh, Never Welcome Center on uh, this collaboration. Uh, unfortunately closed in uh, March last year, but the display is still up. So whenever we reopen, you could uh, learn more about it there. Thank you both uh, for sharing a little more, especially about the history of, um, I guess in those responses, there was to me a lot of um, just history that I wasn't aware of. Uh, and I was, um, I, I guess my first year on campus um, overlapped with when the name, and this is going back a little bit, but when the name of um, the Botanic Gardens, I guess, was still called Plantations. Um, and I remember the first time I rode past that sign on the bus because the bus would pass by that one of the signs um, on the route that took me to my apartment. And honestly, being a little um, triggered by it, be especially because I, I'm a Southerner. So um so, so, so yeah, I, I, I didn't realize how long of a process it was. Also, um, Andy, your mentioning of the history of some of the indigenous populations in the local area was also something I wasn't aware of. Um, and it just made me think of kind of just how, um, how much that, <laughs> that historical context matters. We don't get exposure to it unless we go out and seek it. But I appreciate you both bringing that that knowledge to this um, conversation. One thing I want to follow up is both for this region, there is very little written history that's any good. So if you want to learn about the Finger Lakes region, I can tell you that there's a very fragmentary written record. And particularly for the world we deal with, like the rural landscapes, there's almost nothing. So, uh, you know, it's unlike the Western United States, which was settled later, uh, there, there's an incredible, you know, lack of information of, you know, uh, what it was like here with the, you know, the Haudenosaunee. It's, it, there's, there's bits and pieces, but it's really hard uh, to find. And I think, um, you know, that if you're interested in this area, one, it's an incredibly rich history both uh, you know, post-settlement uh, and before, but it's, it's also not easy to kind of capture it all because uh, it's, it's, no one's, or, you know, in my mind, really done a great job of pulling it all together. Well, there's, there's even a more recent uh, 
development that uh, involves Cornell and the dispossession of land. So a lot of the students know how Cornell was founded, Ezra Cornell, you know, we became the land grant university for New York. But what that really meant was that Cornell was granted land and it wasn't here in Ithaca, it was out West, um, that then they could sell to support building the university. And uh, you know, most of that land that they were granted, we're learning was uh, dispossessed uh, indigenous people's lands in almost every state. And uh, Cornell, interestingly, was, so almost every uh, land grant university uh, was founded this way. They didn't all receive equal amounts of land grants and Cornell's land grant was the largest of uh, any institution. It is uh, kind of come to light of late and there's a lot of uh, student and faculty interest in what Cornell does to kind of um, acknowledge that past and, and uh, do right by it if they can. Um, so if there's folks that are interested, uh, the American in, uh, Indian and Indigenous Studies program and Kurt Jordan their uh, executive director have been charged by uh, Martha Pollack to evaluate this and uh, gather information, gather uh, uh, input from uh, various corners and to uh, provide some recommendations back to the university. And I, and I wanna highlight what um, one of our students mentioned in the chat. Um, Sophia, who um, wrote that um, NASAC, which is N-A-I-S-A-C. Yeah, um, NASAC is Native American and Indigenous Students at Cornell. Thank you for um, highlighting that, Sophia. Um, so our final question is, um, both of you are um, leading careers where you are impacting um, communities and doing work that really matters to you, um, which is... Um, refreshing to hear um, and I think takes a lot of courage. And so I'm wondering if either of you um, have advice that you would be willing to share with students um, for how to lead lives of purpose or in other words, pursue careers that you find personally fulfilling and rewarding. Well, I, a lot of what I do actually now is fundraising, which is not my passion, but it's a means mm -hmm. to an end. But I bring that up because I, I meet so many people because it's just part of my work. So I see a lot of people who are happy, unhappy, somewhere in between in their work lives. And the common thing is whether it is a lawyer, a doctor, Todd Bittner, me, whoever, it's the people who found their passion, whatever it is, some passions are more lucrative than Todd's and mine. But I mean, I think it's, it's understanding yourself and, and not rushing it. Because again, I probably would have been happy in the foreign service too, uh, which was my original plan. But I think I do pe see people are unhappy and typically they say, go right from undergrad to law school and they don't really know what they're doing. And then they spend three years in a law degree in, in law school they pass the bar and they do eight years in a firm and they go, you know, I never really wanted to be a lawyer or somebody, I know doctor, I know a, a, an MD who spent most of their adult life and is now acting hand to mouth on off Broadway, but much happier at it. So 
So I think it's, it's the key is giving yourself the time and, you know, to understand what you want to do. And some people are lucky. Some people learn that at age 15, but for a lot of us, it's much later. And I think it's just, you know, finding that passion, whatever it is, and, and, and taking the time to find it if needed. You know, I, I read that uh, most people have four different careers these days on average. And to me, that tells you, tells me that, um, they're not happy. They, they're, ch- they're changing their careers because they haven't found one that they really were passionate about. The uh, advice that I give uh, to students is uh, to create a, a, a network, a partnership, uh, a, a network of partners. Um, those folks are going to be instrumental in helping you uh, advance your career, uh, much more so than, than a lot of other things. And uh, the other thing that I uh, try to advise students most um, go to school and, and their focus is on becoming subject matter experts, which is really, really key. But at the end of the day, to be effective in what you do, you need to be good at communicating because most of your work is going to be working with people, not the thing that you, <laughs> that you went to study. It is like, uh, you know, Andy was just saying how he works with people and it's like, yeah, I can serve nature, but I mostly work with people. So having good people skills and communication skills will help you and it will work what, whatever career you end up in. So I strongly advise folks to, to uh, not neglect those, uh, honing those skills while you're uh, working on your uh, degrees. Thank you both for your time. Um, It was truly a pleasure getting to know or hearing more from both of you um, about your careers um, and your amazing work. 